Hey, Making Listeners. Recently, we've been telling the stories of iconic black TV and film creators, and there's one trailblazing TV personality whose story we dug into last year and whose art has recently come under attack. Today, we're diving back into Making RuPaul. Since we ran this episode in November, America has seen an outcry against drag performances. As of early June, more than a dozen states have introduced legislation that could criminalize drag shows. Florida, North Carolina, Texas, Tennessee, and more. RuPaul herself took to social media to denounce these anti-drag bans. We know that bullies are incompetent at solving real issues. They look for easy targets so they can give the impression of being effective. They think our love, our light, our laughter, and our joy are signs of weakness. But they're wrong because that is our strength. Drag queens are the Marines of the queer movement. So in this tense moment, we're going to offer a bit of drag history and revisit the origin story of an LGBTQ plus icon. So thank you for listening. Note this episode has some unbleep swearing. I mean, who would have thought that a six foot four black drag queen with blonde hair would be an international star? Well, I would have thought that. And that's what happened. Listen up, honey. From WBEZ Chicago. Can I have your attention, please? This is Making. I'm Brandon Pope. Today. Wake up, Pearl. Good luck. And don't f*** it up. I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) It's making RuPaul. He's arguably the most famous drag queen in the world. With Emmys, Tonys, and 14 studio albums, RuPaul's work is globally acclaimed. But his legacy reaches far beyond Hollywood awards. He's opened doors for the queer community and brought drag to a whole new stage. You have changed the world of drag. Forever. Of course, Rue, because she's the mother of everything. The most influential queer show that has ever existed. What does it take to change a culture? What were the making years for RuPaul Andre Charles? A drag queen! A drag queen! I am the queen of drag! Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Brandon Pope, and this is Making RuPaul. Over her long career, RuPaul has been pretty vocal that she does not have a preferred pronoun of choice. In her biography, she wrote, you can call me he, you can call me she, you can call me Regis and Kathy Lee. I don't care just as long as you call me. So on today's show, expect a mix of pronouns. All right, now joining us to discuss RuPaul's early years and sparkling legacy are four guests. First, we have close friend and DJ Larry T, who wrote RuPaul's smash hit, Supermodel, You Better Work. You better work. (laughs) You better work. That's right. Next, we have a queen that's been by Rue's side since his Atlanta years, founder of Wigstock and legendary drag queen, Lady Bunny. Thank you so much. And please don't forget that I am Rue's younger drag sister. (laughs) (laughs) We also have commentator and author of Drag, The Complete Story, Simon Doonan. 
Thanks for having me. And last but not least, you may have seen her on Drag Race or All Stars. Right here from Chi-Town, Shay Coulee. I'm so excited to be here, and I did not come to play. I came to slay. Work. So I want to go around and ask a warm-up question to everybody. One word to describe RuPaul. Gorgeous. Oh, my God. Um, alien. Extraordinary. Magnetic. RuPaul's mother visited a psychic when she was pregnant. That psychic said Rue would be famous. So I grew up with this idea knowing I would be famous. I didn't know how. He had three sisters. After his parents divorced, his single mom raised them all. It was a house full of women in charge. By the time he was four, he began dressing like Diana Ross and Jane Fonda. Here's his sister in a 2001 A&E biography. There was one person across the street um, who said to Rue, you, Rue, should be the girl, and you, Rozzy, should be the boy, because I was a total tomboy. After flunking out of high school, Rue moved to Atlanta with his sister, Renetta, and her husband. He went to a performing arts school there, but never graduated. Instead, he helped out at the family car dealership. Then, one day... There was a public access television show I saw uh, called The American Music Show, and I felt like I discovered America. I was like... Okay, this this is where I belong. These people understand me. They were sarcastic. They were funny. So I wrote them a letter. And I said, I need to be on your show. It was Atlanta Public Access TV, filmed at someone's house with a budget of $5. He sent in a tape, and they were sold. He became a series regular. This is the American Music Show, season 14, number 6, tape February 19th to be shown, February 22nd, 1985. Tonight featuring me, RuPaul. RuPaul finally found his people. This is where he met DJ Larry T. You know, I remember at the time uh, when RuPaul showed up, I thought he had like fallen out of the sky. When I say I thought he was an alien, he was just so different from Atlantans that we knew. Here was this fully blown rock star character that just landed fully formed. It was yesterday morning. I think I was I was I was um, tripping yesterday morning, and I what? I'm just tripping on life. And I realized that I'm do I'm doing a lot of the thinking for other people that they don't have time to do because they're busy working or doing something else. And that's what I feel I do. So I write books and I perform live on stage. I do videotape and. When he showed up at the American Music Show, they said, so what would you like to do on our show? And he said, oh, I don't know. And so he would lip sync other people's songs, maybe a Whitney Houston song. And uh, I mean, there was just nothing. There was nothing like him. Uh, there were no drag role models. There were no tall, skinny, gay dudes that knew they were going to be a star. And they, you know what, they, that would be the first thing they would tell you when you met them. It was practically, hi, I'm RuPaul. I'm a big star. Eventually, RuPaul created his own band. First, RuPaul and the U-Hauls. Then, Wee Wee Pole. At night, he'd perform in drag. Here's RuPaul in 1983. Lady Bunny was RuPaul's roommate at this time. Ru and I were go-go dancers. We didn't get paid. We just wanted to make the scene and we could get into the clubs for free. 
and uh, that was uh, that was how we met. Um, it's interesting to me to hear his mom saying that that he was going to be famous no matter what because. The funny thing is, none of us had any money back then. We were all shopping at thrift stores. One time we got a gig as extras on a film set and took the lunch money, <laughs> left the set, and uh, and we went to the thrift store to, to spend that money. But, you know, the, we, we were all kind of, you know, artsy-fartsy bums. Rue's jobs in Atlanta would be few and far in between, as were mine. So we would do things like work at Popeye's, but not Rue. <laughs> <laughs> Rue would just wait for months and months and months until, you know, there was a show. I'm glad he became famous because he he works his ass off now, but would, it, he was not going to work at a job that was beneath him, <laughs> even though he had no money. Putting a new emphasis on you better work. <laughs> exactly. Rue yeah. would just go up to people in clubs and say, do you have a dollar? And it was so insane <laughs> that people would often give it to him. So, you know, it was it was like you just weren't. You weren't really used to that. Shay, I'm going to bring you in here. You weren't even born during this era of nightlife yet. So I, I kind of want to get your reaction to this era. Does this sound any different than what drag is now? Um, I feel like with people like RuPaul, it's very few and far between that you meet someone that has just so much recognizable star power just from like the moment that you meet them. I've only experienced this through photos and videos, you know. There's this very specific video of, like, a night out that's, like, somewhere on YouTube with, like, RuPaul and this, like, white kind of, like, negligee kind of corselet top and this really short skirt and this trench coat that honestly I think of all the time because you can really see RuPaul being a working girl talking about their experience in the club saying I let all these men touch on me for money but girl I gotta pay these <laughs> bills so and I was just all like and I've been there in the club when you're when you're when you're trying to get a couple of extra dollars and um there's a chaser there at the club and you're like you know I mean I guess you can grope my thigh and then give me a 20 honestly hearing all of this it's like look the hustle is real and it doesn't really go anywhere it's like not everyone gets the luxury of being an international global superstar so like the girls that are deep you know within the scene they got a hustle and the hustle's real Wait, are you telling me that you get $20 for someone to grope your thigh? I've got to raise my prices. <laughs> you oh you got to negotiate, bud, bud. Ru RuPaul just got $1 back then. He's really happy. Inflation. It's crazy. Sounds like an industry I need to jump into myself. I mean, $20. <laughs> that's, my, that's my thigh. They say thick thighs save lives. I've got them. Yes. <laughs> Rue, Lady Bunny, and Larry T spent the early 80s scraping by in Atlanta. By 1984, they needed a change. Here's Larry T. After we had, uh, you know, made every movie, done every uh, song that we could write, and done the clubs until we were just bored out of our minds, we hit a point where we really needed uh, to do something, but we didn't really know what it was. So we just loaded up all our stuff in a van and uh, decided to move to New York. The crew wanted to spread their wings, but when you do that, sometimes you fall out of the nest. And I'm telling you, right as we're crossing the Tennessee border, we had a flat tire. It literally blew out violently and the van flipped 
on the interstate. Wow. And literally, our stuff was blown out of the back of the van like Ugh. confetti. We were like scrambling around on this empty interstate, gathering up our life's possessions. And once we got the tire fixed and we got the, the van rolling again, we drove to a Heritage USA, Jim and Tammy Baker's amusement park. Because- <laughs> That was just like what we would do. Uh, you know, it was like, that was our best idea at that point, was to go to uh, Jim and see Jim and Tammy Baker after nearly killing ourselves. So, um, Were you hurt? Was anybody hurt? No. Wow. No. No, I remember, actually, it's funny. After the van flipped back over uh, upright, I was like, I just sat there in the, the, the van like, Kind of in sort of in shock, I guess. And Rue kind of nudges me and says, "Hey, doll, I think we should get out of the van." <laughs> and I mean, that should have been a sign of what to come after that. <laughs> Things weren't all glitz and glam in the big city. Rue and his friends struggled to make ends meet. Here's his friend Floyd on A and E. We slept in Central Park. We slept in Abingdon Square Park. We slept in Tompkins Square Park. We would sleep at people's houses. We would people sleep at people's houses that wanted to sleep with me. We would people's houses that didn't want to sleep with me. New York wasn't working for RuPaul. She decided to ditch one big city for another and went to Los Angeles. When Ru left New York, I remember just thinking, oh, this is no good. And I also had been to L.A. enough to know that uh, drag wasn't going to necessarily at that time be a key to stardom because out there, drag really kind of meant you were hooking. You know what I mean? And so uh, she went out there and she kind of hit bottom out in L.A. And uh, she was staying in, on couches and, and she had no money and she was walking around L.A. And you know you're in trouble when you're walking around L.A. So I, I called the bitch and I said, Rue, what are you doing over there? Like, like a stern mother. <laughs> and I said, you need to get your ass back to New York. And so I bought her a ticket back to New York. But she had this one moment where, she, and if she can't talk about it without crying. And it's really like, it's the only time I see that girl cry is when she's talking about this moment where she really lost her faith that she was going to be a star. I don't believe she ever totally lost her faith, but there was doubt there. But then when she got back to New York, she just set herself straight. What happened in the 80s was truly extraordinary. Here's drag historian Simon Doonan describing New York City nightlife in the 80s. There was this unfurling of creativity, a collision, explosion of culture. There's graffiti, there's fashion, there's style, there's music. It's all colliding for the first time. You know, you have people like Keith Haring, Madonna, Warhol changing the culture. And Rue is one of those people. And who are these people? These people are like Bunny. They're like Larry. They're like Shay today. But they're glamorous outsiders. They're audacious people from small towns who don't know what they're going to do, don't have an end goal in mind. They just know that that something inside them is propelling them to be insane and creative and demented and bonkers. And so you get this influx of these audacious, glamorous outsiders. They weren't texting their mothers, please pay my Amex card. These are people (laughs) who were scrappy and crazy and creative, and it produced the 80s. And the backdrop of all this, the backdrop is the worst fucking decade of my life where all your friends are dying. 
Simon is, of course, referencing the AIDS epidemic, which ravaged New York City's queer community in the 1980s and early 1990s. We were we were in the midst of this terrible death and destruction of our friend groups. And and I often wonder if the, the unfurling of creativity that happened in the 80s may be part of part of why it was so vigorous and so high voltage and why you had these extraordinary people like RuPaul come out of it. Maybe it, that had something to do with it, the, the misery and death that was going on as a, as a backdrop for that. And during this painful era, young RuPaul continued to make her art. She performed in drag and went go-go dancing every night to make herself known. Here's Ru at New York's Pyramid Club in 1984. I will break out tonight in New York City where slaves are slaves. Soon, his name was known across the city. And in 1989, he was named Club Queen of Manhattan. Well, you know, that the... King and Queen of Manhattan was totally just another excuse for Michael Alec to throw a party. <laughs> Larry T. There was no voting system. There was no a group of judges deciding. Every year we would sit down and decide like who we thought was big enough to like be King or Queen of Manhattan. And we just needed somebody that was like big enough of a personality that we could hang this thing around them. So <laughs> it was really just a scam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a dubious title, which I also received. Lady Bunny. Yeah, what year were you? I don't remember, but I think it was before Rue. Uh, the, uh, the, yeah, this isn't something that we put on our press releases. Uh, Simon, there were so many drag queens in this era of NYC. What to you made RuPaul stand out amongst the others? Well, my first encounter with Rue, I thought, wow, you know, holy crap, she just looks incredible. First of all, you know, she was three foot taller than me um, in these extraordinary (laughs) heels with tunnel curls. So she was bringing some of that pageant glamour, but making it hip, making it groovy and being incredibly tall and most importantly, being immaculate, she was in a class of her own, sorry, Bunny, with the terms of the immaculate maquillage. Then, one day, RuPaul's friend Cindy Wilson asked him to be in a music video for her band, the B-52s. The song was... It was his first national stage. You know, the Love Shack video was really Rue's Farrah Fawcett moment because Farrah Fawcett was on a TV show where she didn't really say anything, but everybody said, who is that? I remember my dad and I say, waiting for Farrah to show up on this TV show. And in the Love Shack video, she plays the Farrah Fawcett role where you're watching the video and it's cute and everybody, it's like, you know, a bunch of normies dressed up in 60s gear. And then there's RuPaul uh, uh, like doing this crazy dance. And uh, it was that moment where everybody in, that saw the video and everybody saw that video, they went, who is that? Then RuPaul released a song that changed it all. You better work. My next guest not only can get away with wearing the shortest of skirts, but she can almost dunk a basketball, too. Performing her hit single, Supermodel, You Better Work, a girl who knows how to dress for success, RuPaul. 
supermodel, You Better Work, hit the top 50 charts. It became one of the biggest dance club anthems of the 90s. RuPaul was officially national. I honestly will never, ever forget the first time I saw RuPaul. Shay Coulee. My sister, my older sister, um, Ayana, may she rest in peace, um, was such a huge fan of RuPaul. And I remember, because she obviously knew that I was a special little child, sat me down because the music video was playing on MTV for Supermodel, You Better Work. And she was like, come here, I want you to see this. And I remember sitting down like on the floor and like looking up, watching the TV and being so just entranced by what I was witnessing. I didn't, I didn't even know what a drag queen was. I just remember seeing RuPaul and being like, I don't even know. It was kind of like seeing an alien. I was like, I don't even know what it is that I'm witnessing right now. But whatever this is, I want to experience a piece of that. And I, I didn't really know at that time that such a deep seed had been planted. But it was definitely there. And those influences still, you know, really, really contribute a lot to my art and my point of view today. DJ Larry T. wrote Supermodel. You better work. You know, I wrote Supermodel because, A, I love RuPaul, and uh, and I wanted to see them uh, be big. And they had, they got a record deal with, of all things, this hip-hop label called Tommy Boy. And I thought, well, if you're going to do a song, you why don't you take what is that theme of the moment? And at the time, it was all about the supermodels. The supermodels would come to our love machine parties in a supermodel cluster, Linda, Christie, and Naomi, and they'd stand together so that you couldn't miss them under a light. Like, uh, which was just fabulous. And all the queens would come up and say, oh, Cindy Christie, you're my favorite, you know. And, uh, and it came out so quick that we hadn't even signed the paperwork when it came out. And I remember at the time thinking, mm, I don't know. And then, you know, I learned to love it 25 years later when the money's still rolling in off that. <laughs> Larry T said that supermodel marked a turning point for RuPaul. Rue didn't just come down from the heavens uh, meticulously done. In fact, it was right up until her single was released that she was still really rough. And it was just like she was just on survival mode. She would just throw it on and, you know, just literally she could do her makeup in 10 minutes if need be. Because it was like survival drag at that point. But when she got that deal and she did the video for Supermodel, You Better Work, Bitch. Uh, before then, she didn't have the gorgeous curls. She didn't have the uh, perfect hair. She didn't have the, the waist cincher. And that was really the uh, beginning of the the new RuPaul, you know, when she does her look at the beginning of each show and she says, you know, like, this is the front and this is the back, kind of came from uh, the beginning of her um, career with the song Supermodel, You Better Work, Bitch. Yeah, and she didn't want to do This Is The Back before Supermodel because three inches of that big foot were hanging off of those mules. <laughs> Larry, do you remember that mix that was played in the New York clubs, which were more underground? They never played the, the, the radio mix. They just played one, and I, I never understood this, where all you heard was work, work. Do, 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 work, do, work. What was the name of that mix? 
Yeah, there was an underground mix. You know, uh, most dance songs would have a, a life about three months, but this song stayed on the chart the entire year, and it was because halfway through, MTV picked up the video, and then that convinced Tommy Boy to doing this remix that was more tribal. It was just tribal drums. And then, so it stayed on longer than any other song that year. Every time I hear that song, it just gets Every single time. Every single every time. single time. It was a hit then, and it is a hit now. Yeah, that's house music for you. Timeless. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> When we come back, we'll chat about Drag Race. More making in a minute. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, and RuPaul began a new project with a longtime friend, Randy Barbato. And in his eyes, I'm going to say this without crying, I could see everything that I've done in my career, I could see reflected back in his eyes. I could see that he could see what, I, what my potential was, what I could do. I had never met anyone who could see that thing. Barbato and Fenton Bailey had founded World of Wonder Productions, and they wanted to recruit RuPaul for a new reality TV show. Rue was hesitant at first, but one thing changed his mind. President Barack Obama's 2008 win. He told Vulture in 2017 he felt a social and cultural change coming, and RuPaul's Drag Race was born. But when the series piloted, it was very low budget. They shot in a basement. The control room was a closet. Here's season one contestant Chanel. It was filmed through a Coke bottle. We know that. <laughs> it was. It was actually. It was a very, very, very small set. I remember uh, checking into the hotel, and it was a very mediocre establishment. Uh. And it was like, okay. This is DJ Larry T. I think the World of Wonder was clever enough to figure out that uh, that a. People wanted the stories, and they wanted the lingo. I mean, the first two seasons, it, should, it might have been called Madame Tussauds Drag Race because it was really stiff and really controlled, and Rue was very Judge Judy. But then World of Wonder focuses on these stories, and they kind of bring like a lot of average gay people right into your home, which I don't think a lot of people had ever seen. The show didn't need money to be successful. It needed stories, and it delivered. One queen revealed she was HIV positive. Another discussed weight problems. I would like to send out to the plus-size community, live your dreams, don't let anyone stop you, don't let your size stop you. Unfortunately, I'm the first to go, but I made it here. This is drag historian Simon Doonan. People don't really care about production values. World of Wonder very cleverly played with the low budget. They knew that 
you can't fool the audience, but what they gave them instead were all these incredible truths about people's lives, how they live, and, you know, the empathy that was incorporated into that show is priceless, and I think that propelled it forward, but not done in a mawkish, overly sentimental way. They never... It never becomes annoying. It's always incredibly real. And like I'm like clutching the Kleenex in front of the TV because it, the impact on the wider culture of something like that is just inestimable. And people loved it. It became known for its iconic looks and iconic lines. Now, sachet away. Five G's, please. Good God, get a grip, girl. My big fat 14-inch clock. <laughs> I don't have to be All your right friend then. to win this show. This is not RuPaul's best friend, right? No Sherlock. Now, RuPaul's Drag Race has dozens of adaptations across the world. Señoras y señores, a continuación se inicia una nueva temporada. And 26 Emmys. And the winner is RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> and in 2018, RuPaul earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Everybody say love. love. Everybody say love. love. Now drive that down Hollywood Boulevard. Get your ass out of here. This is absolutely the most important moment in my professional career. Thank you so much. Super broad question here. I want to talk about RuPaul's legacy. I'll start with you, Larry. What's your take? You know, I, one of the things that always astounds me is there's there's been a lot of, of of TV shows and documentaries around gender in America and on TV, and they always leave RuPaul out of uh, like uh, I don't know maybe because she stepped in it once or twice in in the ever changing dialogue around he she they them about tr- having trans on the show, and I one of the things that is clear. RuPaul put her big pump in the door, opened the door just a little at first to allow people to express themselves in whatever way they chose. But for uh, for a whole generation, I, I'll bet if you talk to any trans woman out there that if you said, do you remember when you first heard RuPaul's record? You know, they will remember like it was the Kennedy assassination. It was such a loud shot in the gender conversation throughout the world. It was like such a powerful moment of being seen for so many people, trans women, uh, you know, a lot of times come through drag to get to their transness, you know, before they realize, oh, I'm, I'm a woman. I'm not a drag queen anymore. And to me, just watching this and watching, watching her make mistakes in it, to me, the show has also been a learning moment for the America and the world. Larry, you mentioned watching Rue make mistakes. She's previously gotten in some hot water for her comments about the trans community, including um, in 2018, Rue justified the exclusion of trans women on drag race. Shay, you come from a different generation here. What's your take on this, given what Larry just said about Rue also opening doors for trans women? So for me, I always have to at least um, try and give room for people's experiences. And, you know, 
it's RuPaul's experience coming up in the scene. It was a different time. And I feel like we needed to allow mother to have time to have this like learning moment without infighting within the community. Um, having a learning moment is important, but also being on the other side and creating a teachable moment without kind of attacking somebody is also really important too. being able to have like compassion and the way that you approach someone. Um, I feel personally that the show has really made so many strides in its inclusion of the stories of trans individuals. Um, now we are seeing the inclusion of so many trans uh, contestants on the show. And as a viewer, as a fan, had I wish we had had more people with trans experience on there sooner? Absolutely. But I am so happy that we get to have that now. I feel like really has opened up a lot of doors around those conversations of identity and how transness relates to drag and how you can be trans and do drag. And, you know, it's not this or that. But at the same time, I also wanted for people to have a little bit more compassion for Rue and their journey and learning about how to handle this. I will say, I mean that the change, um, the revolution in gender and trans has been quite rapid, you know. So we're all we're all sort of trying to keep up with it and, and make sure we're all, we're expressing things in the in the correct way. And um when I started writing my drag book, there was a firewall between drag and trans. If you wanted to insult um uh somebody who was trans, you would call them a drag queen. You know, so that that changed and that change was rapid. And uh, I think RuPaul's Drag Race is a mirror of the culture, you know, and now has evolved with the culture and now mirrors the culture. And, you know, that mirroring process is complex and involves dialogue and, as Shay says, compassion and and listening and being like, oh, OK, yeah, right. And I get that. You know, that's so important. I mean, this is quite a great conversation, a powerful conversation and a nuanced one. And I really appreciate all of you for bringing your full selves into it. So I want to toss this question uh, back to the rest of you. What is RuPaul's legacy? I mean, um, there's so much influence there. You know, it's like RuPaul really is the blueprint for the way that we associate modern day drag stardom. You know, uh, when you were uh, reading off Rue's credits earlier and you said that they have 14 albums, my jaw dropped. Now I'm a fan of Rue's music and, you know, I'll stream the albums and I literally was like, damn, there are 14 of these bitches. I was like, she's got more albums than Rihanna. What RuPaul has really solidified is that you can be a drag mogul. You know, you can dip your toe in all of these different industries. You can be a television host. You can be a model. You can be a uh, recording artist. You can be an actor. You can have cosmetics. You can have a candy bar. You can have a doll. You can really do it all just as long as you put your all in it. And RuPaul has launched the careers of countless 
drag queens. And it is just so incredible to see the reach, to see the way that RuPaul's brand has continued to expand and and inspire. And the fact that like I can be out here now being a full-time drag queen, you know, be a homeowner, you know, like have young kids who come up to me and say that they look up to me for what I do is just really a testament to how impactful um, RuPaul's career and contributions to the world of modern drag have been. Well said, Shay. Simon? The Black Drag Queen. I've got in, in my book, which I have here in front yes. of me, um, <laughs> I have a, a, a chapter devoted to the Black Drag Queen because Black Drag Queens are the source you know, you can turn on CNN now and people are talking about throwing shade and blah, blah, blah. And it all goes back to the black drag queen as a cultural source and Rue being obviously the apex of that. So I'll just read you the first little bit here because I wrote it. No, <laughs> um, Avis Pandavis, Kennedy Davenport, Jasmine Masters, Angie Extravaganza, Mona Foote, Nina Bonina Brown, Connie Girl, The Vixen, Chichi Devane, um, Shea Coulee, Peppermint. These are a few of my favorite black drag queens. Whether finger popping, reading, mopping, gagging, voguing, talking to the hand, twerking, working, throwing shade, serving genius and overness, being legendary or simply giving realness, the black drag queen is an enduring source of fascination and inspiration. And she generously and magnanimously enriches the culture, often receiving comparatively little in return. And we must all bow down before her. Hashtag gratitude. Oh, yes. And I think Rue is, um, you know, Rue is the, uh, you know, the empress of that. Yeah, you know, she reminds me that really anything's possible. She can be a model, she can be an actress, she can be a singer, she can be a a candy bar salesman, you know? (laughs) She can be a man, she can be a woman. To me, it's like anything's possible. You know, when she did her put up her, her signs all over Atlanta and Midtown that said, RuPaul is everything, it couldn't be more true. RuPaul is absolutely everything she decides she's gonna be. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Making is produced by Hina Srivastava and edited by Justin Bull. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Brendan Benazak. More episodes are on the way. Be sure to press that subscribe button and we'll see you next time.